welcome to PH Podcast, where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a fifth-year graduate student in the Human Genetics Department at the University of Chicago. Please welcome Lauren Blake. Hey! Hi! So, what's your weird fact for us? So, I was raised in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, which is the start of the Boston Marathon. Nice! So would you like go out and watch people get ready? Yeah, and actually a lot of times we would play in the band that started it. Uh, when we were little, The some of the elite runners would come to our school, and oh. that was really exciting. <laughs> it was actually really cool. <laughs> um, so what are you drinking today? I am drinking ripe beer cider. I actually have a gluten allergy, so I am all about the cider. Dude, I feel that. We have a friend who's very, like, celiac disease, gluten intolerant, and so we have to be very careful. Um, I am having a sketchbook, Orange Door. Uh, yeah, double dry hop double IPA. So, cheers. Cheers. Mmm. So, tell me about your research. Sure. Um, so, my research is actually... A combination of a long thing, a lot of things coming. I started, I did a high school science fair where my project was very nutrition based. We were very interested in looking at uh, dietary alternatives for preventing and treating urinary tract infections. And so I was specifically focusing on the mechanisms that blueberry juice uh, was using in order to prevent urinary tract infections. I'm sorry, was this in high school? This was, yeah. So actually, tying back to my fun fact about running, so Hopkinton is a huge running town. And so I, when I was in eighth grade, I was like, I'm going to make the, the high school cross country team. I'm going to run every day. And unfortunately, I also grew four inches that year. <laughs> and while I was running, like, way increasing my mileage. And so my knees were just like, nope. We are done. And so as a result, when I could no longer run, I was looking for an activity to do that was uh, did not involve my knees because they were <laughs> broken and done. And so basically my high school had, um, for certain science classes, they required science fair. Mm-hmm. And so for when I was in ninth grade, I did a very small, also nutritionally based project. Um, but what was really cool about when I was in ninth grade is that there was also a lot of 11th graders doing science fair for their classes as well. And so what I was, so it was cool to see that kind of community building with all these 11th graders that people that I really looked up to who were great students that were so passionate about what they were doing. And to be able to see that, be mentored by them, to see their dedication um, and, and how much they loved it, that kind of sucked me in. And I, I often talk about, particularly with um, with the members of the public that I think there's a misconception about scientists that we're a very lone wolf, that we're kind of doing it ourselves in the lab by ourselves. And that is not true at all. That even if you're doing your own project, you're constantly getting input from other from other people or you're working together and maybe someone's generating the data and then you're working with them to analyze the data and these really great partnerships that can happen both within the lab or across the lab. 
uh, with across multiple labs. And we definitely see that within the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Chicago. Um, but my really, my first exposure to that was in high school. Yeah, no, I totally feel that. I actually have the opinion that if like it's a lone, a lone wolf scientist, I don't trust their work. Like <laughs> considering how many errors I've made in my research, I do not trust one person who has not had someone go back and be like, are you sure you coded this right? But, um, so, so you're in the Department of Human Genetics. What, like how much types of research does that span? Or how many, I guess. So anything that might affect human complex traits, human diseases, human health. Um, we have people that are studying model organisms in order to learn about human health. We have um, more that are human cell-based sort of models, so cells in a Petri dish. And then we have people working on human data as well. And do you work across all of those like levels, essentially? I work primarily with human cells and also uh, with data that's been generated by humans. Yeah. No, um, I am jealous that you use human cells because I use humans in my research and they don't always show up when they said that they would and it's very troublesome, but... <laughs> That is, that's true. And, and I think that using a variety of approaches is, is really important. Um, and I'm hoping that with most of the, the research that's been in my lab, that that's primarily cell-based, but I'm kind of expanding towards uh, more human data and seeing, okay, what are some of the approaches that we're doing in one field that we can bring to the other? Mm -hmm. So then... Um, what is your main, like, what would you say is your question, your research focus of interest? I know that's like, tell me your life story, but. <laughs> right. Uh, so for a long time, the first couple of projects that I took was about, um, how can we look at, use humans and non-human primates in order to better understand human specific traits and diseases. And I then uh, carried that into my research in the genetic underpinnings of eating disorders. And so really going from very broadly, how can we look at diseases and traits to let's actually look at a specific disease. Right, and really focus in on it. So this is a question um, that just popped in my head. Do animals also have eating disorders? Is that a thing in the animal world outside of humans? So that's actually, I've, I've actually gotten this question a couple of times of people talking to, to me about their, about their pets or about <laughs> their, um, and however, um, that, I think that that's an area that still needs to be a little bit more explored. Unfortunately, it's actually very difficult to um, induce eating disorders within mice models and mm. particularly for anorexia nervosa i think that a lot of the um mice really like to eat and so when you give them um when you give them an unlimited supply of food they will eat that right. um so that probably better models some uh eating disorder like binge eating uh rather than a restrictive disorder like anorexia nervosa. That's so interesting. Yeah, because I guess we in pop culture tend to think of it as being like this this disease that is created because of beauty standards and unhealthy cultural beliefs about what a body should look like. And I think most animals don't, like there are genetic preferences for like 
creatures with symmetric faces because it indicates you're disease free, but like not the same kind of thing as like, no, we want Twiggy. Like we don't, <laughs> no fat. Sure. And I think that that, I think you're, you're pointing to something in the, the, a lot of the misconceptions about eating disorders and specifically about anorexia nervosa about for a long time, it was thought of as just a social cultural disease, that it was this desire for thinness and that there was no biological basis. And I think that that hurt a lot of the funding for a really long time and hurt a lot of the research progress for a long time. And now actually a lot of research that's coming out is actually highlighting that anorexia nervosa is a biologically influenced disease and that there are uh, genetic loci that are associated with anorexia nervosa susceptibility. And so I think that that is opening up a lot more doors in terms of understand not only understanding the disorder but also for for treatment options and really um and, and like we talked about earlier with biomarkers yeah and like treatment specifications like we were early we were talking about depression and, and there's not just you know depression is not just major depressive disorder there's also cyclothymia and there's like there's flavors of it and they don't all respond to the same kind of treatments and, and an individual person might, like, certain treatments don't work, but certain do. And is that kind of the stuff you're seeing with anorexia? Or? Well, so what's really actually quite scary about anorexia nervosa is that there, there are no pharmaceutical options for specifically for, for um, patients with anorexia nervosa. So um, a lot of times they will be, patients will be prescribed, let's say, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, but nothing specifically to look at the, or, or to address the shape and weight uh, concerns. And I think that, excuse me, part of, because sort of the, the genetics research is behind and the biological research is behind mm. a lot of other psychiatric disorders that actually the, um, that, that that has really impeded drug uh, development. Yeah. No, absolutely. I didn't even realize that there was no drug. Al- I guess like I don't know what the drug alternative would be. Like I can at least make guesses at some of the other ones. So, but you're not doing drug development. You're looking at the biomarkers and the the genetics behind eating disorders, right? Correct. So, one of the questions that we are really interested in is has to do with weight relapse. And so, for example, when patients come to an eating disorder unit, it's typically a specialized program within the hosp- within a hospital. Um, there's a couple of centers around the country that that have a very specialized program to help individuals with anorexia nervosa. Um, a lot of these individuals will be at very low body weight, so something like 60% of their ideal body weight. Ooh, yeah. That's so like 80 pounds, right, for like a... For someone that is about five six or five seven. Yeah. Oh my Jesus! Yeah. Oh my so Jesus. it's very and and that's again. I think the media sort of glorifies the like this ideal for thinness and, um, but not really recognizing that individuals with anorexia nervosa. This is a very serious disorder. Yeah. This isn't. Oh, I wish I didn't have such a tummy. This is. They're down to like tendons and organs. Correct. Um, and actually, um, anorexia nervosa is the psychiatric disorder with the highest mortality rate. Whoa, really? Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, just because their organs will start shutting down. Correct. 
Yeah. Oh my I particularly, there's a we see a lot of uh, patients with heart related conditions um, because of the low body weight, and so um, what we so so what we are are seeing with our patients that are coming into the let's say an eating disorder unit um, during their treatment. Their so part is uh, nutritional rehabilitation, so that is helping to increase their body weight. But there's also um, a psychotherapy component to that, and so the so as patients increase weight, um, they are uh, that that can take several weeks or or even several months. And when patients are discharged, unfortunately, so some patients do really well once they're. Um, their weight restored. Unfortunately, some patients do not. And about 30 to 35 to 50 percent of patients will actually lose their weight, the weight that they had gained in the in the hospital in uh, in two years. And usually, unfortunately, the danger zone is the first like six months to a year. And so basically what we're trying to do is be able to build predictive models based on biological data for who is at the most at risk for the for this weight relapse and losing weight after they discharge from the hospital. So it would be like you could argue that this kind of predictive modeling would be useful to understand who is going to be the most likely to relapse and who should therefore get like extra tracking or like have a more comprehensive treatment to see if maybe it'll cost less to, you know, like keep an eye and check in every month versus have them come back in and have to go through the whole process again. Sure. So there's, there's a lot more that we could do on a, on an outpatient basis or on a lower level of care basis with that increased monitoring. The other thing that we may be able to use this for is making an argument to insurance companies mm. that, hey, this patient is at really high risk of weight relapse if you discharge them now, but so let's keep them a little bit longer. Yeah. And I think that, um, the a, a lot of time is spent kind of with that fighting with insurance companies. And so anything that we can do to not only say, yes, the person's at this weight, however, maybe they are at increased risk mm-hmm. for weight relapse if they discharge. And so let's keep them longer to help stabilize them more. And so um, I think that there are a lot of applications for not just monitoring, but then also potentially even for treatment. Yeah. No, absolutely. So then what are these what do these biomarkers look like? Are you doing spit? Are you doing blood? Sure. So my um, my section of the project is looking at gene expression levels. So uh, gene expression is not just the DNA sequence, so the ATCG, but it's a it's the when and at what levels what amount it's actually expressed so like how much is that piece of the the genetic code getting transcribed and turning into to proteins going out and doing their job correct because the dna is like your instruction manual but you have to build enough of the stuff to actually do what it's supposed to do exactly and so we actually have data from patients from a eating disorder unit that when they are um, first admitted into the hospital as well as when they're discharged. And so basically what we're really interested in is seeing the genes for which the this expression level 
at either dis at either discharge admission or both are able to then help predict weight relapse. Okay, yeah. And so then are you looking at specific proteins in blood based to, to determine gene expression? Like how Yeah, so we're actually looking a step earlier, which is the mRNA levels. And so the mRNA are ultimately um, going to influence the level of proteins. Uh but yeah. proteomics is a very difficult <laughs> um, field. And so right now we are just looking at this mRNA level. Um, I think what's really advantageous about this kind of approach is that um, because of the health risks for individuals with AN when they're in the hospital, they do get blood taken at admission and discharge as well as about every two to five days um, oh. for reasons other than our research. Right. It's already so, happening and you just get exactly. a so we're, of blood. Exactly. So we're able to kind of build on that. Um, and so I think that this is a system that ha- holds a lot of potential and could actually be implemented in a hospital setting because like I said they're getting blood taken blood yeah. drawn anyway there's no extra burden to like oh and now we have to run a bunch of other expensive tests it's like no no you're already collecting this data let us just analyze it and get a better sense of what's going on here exactly so what have been so you're fifth year now correct so you, you've like yeah. you've done some research man <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I I actually started by learning really the core fundamentals of gene expression analysis. And so my first two projects are actually gene expression on human and chimpanzee cells and tissues. And I... um, that was that was great for teaching the kind of the core skills skill set, um, but like I said, I I did always have this interest in in nutrition and genetics and kind of how it all collides and and human health as well, and so when I was really thinking about okay, what's what's going to be my third project and and moving forward, what keep what question keeps me up at night, and it really had to do with. How can we affect the, how can we use genetic and gene by environment interactions in order to better uh, influence our understanding of eating disorders as well as affect treatment? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a way more laudable goal than me who's like, sleep. What's it do? <laughs> I don't know. If you don't sleep, though, oh, I know. That's a thing, right? It's like, tied you cannot everything. do anything. I could not do my research if I wasn't crushing the sleep game. I know, and sleep's like tied to almost every mental disorder. Like, either yes. too much or not enough. Yes. So it's always like there's there's some people that argue like sleep is driving the the mental disorders, and it's actually like a, a dysregulation of your ability to sleep. That's off topic, though. Um, <laughs> So, so what has what is your big thesis project? What are you trying to look at in particular? So ours is much more kind of segmented, and then we have their our overall theme. And so mine is really about how can we use the how can we use gene expression to better understand what makes us human as well as what influences our susceptibility to 
uh, diseases and disorders. And then are you looking at only like a few different kinds of MRA or because MRA is just like the, the messenger RNA, Correct. right? So mm-hmm. are you looking like are there several different little messenger bits that you're looking for that you're tracking? Correct. So we use a, a technique called RNA sequencing that enables us to get measurements from across the genome. And mm. so from many, many, many different genes. And so right now what I'm kind of in the weeds doing is figuring out exactly the genes whose gene expression is able to help, excuse me, who it, the gene expression is different at um, between people that have weight restored and weight relapsed at three months post-discharge, at seven months post-discharge, and at a year post-discharge. So you're, you're not only tracking them across their medical stay, like when they get admitted to discharge. Correct. But then you're also having a couple of like later, longer-term check-ins, and you're going to see which, which genes are getting highlighted that can tell the difference between this group of people who maintain their weight versus those that end up with a relapse. Correct. And so we want to see, can early gene expression levels help us make predictions about uh, weight relapse versus weight restoration at many different time points. And so I think that's a little bit confusing because we're essentially taking data from the early time points when patients are in the hospital to make predictions about when they're out of the hospital. Yeah. Um, And I think for me, at least that's, but that's like the most exciting part is that, and and seeing the, the potential for these predictions. Yeah, what you what you can do with that data could be incredibly powerful. Um, depending, exactly. yeah. I mean, I'm assuming there's a genetic difference because like that di- that difference is coming from somewhere. Sure. So, and I think that they're really the genetic underpinnings of of eating disorders and specifically for anorexia nervosa has really focused on susceptibility. Mm. And one of the things that that I would really like to push forward has to do more with with recovery to better inform, okay, when we have patients with anorexia nervosa or any other eating disorders, what, how can we best help them kind of going forward? And um, I think that unfortunately the uh, anorexia nervosa as well as other eating disorders are, are, are behind in that area. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about it is because this is where some of the other psychiatric disorders were five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. We can help. Yeah. You know, we can really help <laughs> catch up. I say also, bonus, you have low-hanging fruit. Like, nobody's done this thing that they've done in all the other things. So let's see if it works here too. Like, it's it's the tool has been developed and now you got to apply it to this new question. Well, and I think that that's... Also, one of the really exciting things is that with we have this really nice roadmap with other psychiatric disorders. However, some of the research that's coming out with with anorexia nervosa and and kind of preliminarily with some of the other eating disorders is that there's also a metabolic component mm. that we don't see with other psychiatric disorders, and that's crazy. I mean, when I was first reading the literature. I was like, what? This might have both a, a psychiatric and a metabolic component that, that is genetically influenced? Like, what? That completely changes the paradigm that we've been thinking about anorexia nervosa and, and, and other eating disorders as well. And so I think with we're able to now both think about, okay, how do we take the schiz- or sorry, the psychiatric 
disorder literature and how do we use that to advance uh, our understanding of anorexia nervosa and, and other eating disorders. But then also, okay, if there is this metabolic component, now can we also look at some of the obesity and the nutrition research mm-hmm. and can we combine that in? Um, and to me, that makes it feel like such a unique and exciting field that we could have never predicted that five or, or 10 years ago. Um, and I, I just want to talk, I mean, some of the champions of that have really been at the University of North Carolina, um, as well as at the University of California, San Diego. They are just really pushing this work forward, as well as some international, really, really great international collaborators. Um, I think what we've learned from from anorexia nervosa and studying other eating disorders is it really takes a village yeah. and, and really like, you know, we're pulling samples from other places and, and we're trying to get collaborators that can maybe only contribute some samples. Um, but everyone's kind of contributing their knowledge and, and enthusiasm and, and really trying to push this forward. Well, and because you're getting all these international collaborators and across the U.S., you're going to have a much more diverse sample. And there's a lot of evidence that like genetic studies in particular suffer from having a quote-unquote standardized sample where it's going to be mostly white, maybe mostly male. And that doesn't always... Then you, you find quote-unquote biomarkers, which like are true for white people, not black people, not Asian people. like And so by having this like international village you can kind of help alleviate some of those issues. Sure, and I definitely think that that's something that the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium and and particularly the Eating Disorder Working Group is really stressing is we don't just want females, we want males. (laughs) We want a very diverse sample. We don't just want Caucasians, we want a very diverse sample. And and I think that there's, um, that, that really I applaud the leadership for, for pushing that forward and making that such a priority, um, particularly because I think that there is um, a lot of misconceptions about kind of who gets eating disorders. Yeah. White women, <laughs> white rich women. Exactly. And, <laughs> I, and I think that that is absolutely not true um, throughout both the literature and, and the, as well as just who we're seeing as, yeah. as patients. Um, but it, it can be extremely detrimental in terms of people getting access to treatment and people being believed. And um, I think that that's something that the eating disorder community has worked really hard to, to educate, let's say, um, primary care physicians of that there is this huge um, spectrum of, of people. And just because someone looks a certain way or has some kind of socioeconomic status or has some kind of, it belongs in some kind of demographic, that it doesn't mean that they are immune from getting eating disorders. And so one thing that I'm really proud of the field of doing is is really highlighting that it's very important to take the signs and symptoms of eating disorders very seriously and that there is a that really there's a wide range of people that can have eating disorders. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree, especially socioeconomic status influences what we think people should and shouldn't experience. Um, so would you say then, because there's like, it sounds like there's all this cool genetic international research going on. Is it starting like, was there ever a funding issue for anorexia nervosa? Like, is that a thing the NIH was super excited to help fund or? 
Unfortunately, I think we um, that a lot of the eating disorder research is is very behind and just sort of catching up. And um, there's some really interesting work from the um, NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, that basically um, tracks the how detrimental a, a disorder is or a class of disorder is versus the amount of funding. Mm. And actually, eating disorders is extremely underfunded relative to other disorders. And um, well, like this you is, said, it's like the number one killer of mental disorders. <laughs> exactly, and it's and that is that's really scary. Um, but I also am really hopeful for the future in terms of both the kind of team that's getting on board mm-hmm. and, and and the team that's going and the this dedication to collaboration as well as the the NIMH and the NIMH and sorry the NIH in general like taking this much more seriously right it's like the next step forward is like really funding this and then we can get a good grasp that will answer a lot of fundamental questions exactly so I have to ask um you're in your fifth year which means like you'll eventually be done soon yes (laughs) what's next yeah honestly I was put on this earth to help with eating disorder treatment and so whatever way I can do that that's what I'm supposed to be doing um I think that the kind of typical path would be to go more into academia and kind of do the do the postdoc and do the principal investigator, big big professor. Build a lab. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that that is definitely a possibility, but I also think that there there's also opportunities uh, potentially within entrepreneurship as well as there's some really exciting uh, behavioral health and, and healthcare consulting opportunities and uh it's funny I actually got asked that question of like what do you want to be when you grow up and I was like (laughs) you know what when I think about affecting eating disorders care my I wake up before my alarm (laughs) and I want to do that every single day if I can wake up before my alarm I will be exceptionally happy and, and proud to contribute I wish I wish that was my truth too. <laughs> I wish I ever woke up before my alarm. <laughs> well, you're very you're very busy. I mean, I think I uh, I think for me it's very much about picking picking the priorities and and saying you know what like where can I have the most impact? Yeah, where does what I like? Here's the thing I want to do. Where do I go to really do it and make a difference? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a beautiful note to leave this on. Sounds good. Because it's so inspirational. Um, So I want to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, tell your friends about the podcast. And you can leave me a review on iTunes. Your review helps me reach a larger audience and get even more interesting guests on the show. In addition, I just have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast and help support the production costs. Friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, has been editing the show for free, but we'd really like to use your patronage to uh, make this podcast a sustainable project that's just not on free time and free money and free beer. Do it. Tyler's amazing. (laughs) Tyler's great. Uh, If you want to hear what I'm up to, 
Follow me on iTunes at, or on Twitter at PH Drinking. And my personal account is Sadie Witt. And then Lauren, how would you like people to find you? Sure. So my Twitter is at Lauren underscore E Lawrence underscore Blake. Um, the Academy for Eating Disorders, as well as the National Eating Disorder Association also has some really great resources um, to learn more about both about eating disorders as well as if you have any questions or you think um, you or a loved one may be affected by an eating disorder. They have a, some great um, resources as well as a hotline um, to help you. And as always, I'll make sure those links are in the podcast description so you guys can find Lauren's Twitter handle and all those resources. Um, Thanks again for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Great. This has been really exciting and and great to kind of share both my passion as well as um, increase awareness about eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And to all you listeners out there, cheers. Cheers.